Hey, welcome to the Trapola Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. Today, we have a special guest. He is the founder of Human Resources, one of the prominent indie distributors in the game right now, which was recently acquired by Sony, where he's now an executive vice president, both there and the Orchard. I'd like to welcome Jay Irving to the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me, man. How are you? I'm excited for this. I'm interested in your career because you've been a vet in this game for some time and you've started your career in artist management, which I do think is a pretty common path. I've seen a lot of people that are now executives that have started off. What was it about artist management specifically that drew you in to the industry? I had a friend who was a senior executive over at Universal when I was getting out of college and He basically told me that management was the best way to learn every aspect of the music business because you're dealing with every aspect of it. You're making an album, you're creating marketing, you know, initiatives and dealing with the marketing folks at the labels and you're quasi business manager. Sometimes you're a therapist, sometimes you're a dad, sometimes you're, you know, you gotta wear a lot of different hats as a manager. And he felt like that was a way for me to figure out where I wanted to be in this space. And I got blessed and lucky early to get some pretty big clients. And I stuck with management. Because I've heard from a lot of people, similar to what you said, it's the best way to understand everything that's going on. But it could also be a thankless job, too, just with all those different hats that you have to wear. But you might always get compensated or treated fairly for a lot of that. Is that similar to your experience at all? Last to get thanked and first to get blamed is a management experience. I mean, it, when it's going right, a lot of times the artist did it. And some, you know, and a lot of times when it's going wrong, it's it's the manager's fault. It's not an easy job. And it's almost not fair to give it that stigma because I feel like there are artists that are super thankful and loyal and, and committed. But you know, you hate to see managers that have grown, you know, and helped build artists and then their relationship, you know, they sever, you know, their relationship for whatever reason. We've been fired a lot. And you know, I never felt like it was because we didn't do a good job. I mean, we worked really hard for our acts and sometimes you just start to not see eye to eye creatively or it's a challenging relationship because you spend a lot of time with someone and you basically have their career in your hands. So it's a tough space to be in for sure. Did any of those firings, did any of them catch you off guard or was any of them things that, I guess, things that you saw coming as opposed to things that were a surprise? Most of them caught me off guard. I mean, I think that, you know, You'd like to think, especially for the ones that, you know, we helped kind of build from scratch, we have to spend so much time, sometimes more time with our clients than we do with our families. And when you've been there and you've been kind of in the trenches with folks, you never want to think that you're not going to be with them forever and always, you know, that's the hope. So they all kind of catch you off guard. I do think that it got to a point where you start to see the writing on the wall. I think initially, you know, early days I was so naive and I'm like, that will never happen. But, you know, you start to see the writing on the wall and they start to uh, insinuate that they're not happy about one thing or the other. Yeah. But it's part, it's part of the game. That makes sense. It almost reminds me of like head coaches on a football team getting fired, right? Like some of it's going to be sure your fault. Some of it may not be your fault, but more than anyways, if you have shown yourself and if people recognize what you're doing, you're probably going to get another job or another opportunity to continue putting in that work. But you're going to get fired. You know, going into it, you know, if you're going to coach a NBA team or an NFL team, or, you know, you're going to get fired. 
You're going into it knowing. Right. Yeah. You don't go into a job like that thinking that you're always going to have it. If you do that, you're probably in the wrong field to begin with. Yeah. You're going to get fired. You're absolutely going to get fired because, you know, even if you have a great run, it's going to turn around at some point. Did anything from that experience specifically inspire you to and connect the dots to the work that you've been doing in recent years? Because it was 2017 that you had launched human resources as an indie distributor wanting to be more pro artists and understanding their needs relative to how the traditional system may serve them. Were there any dots there in terms of what you would experience to inspire you to start to create what you created? I got fired by Jeremiah. I got a text from him on my birthday that basically said, you're fired. Wow. And then, you know, for me, it was, it was one of those moments where it's like, I'm over 40 years old and I probably wanted it more for him than he wanted it for himself. And certainly had felt like I had built to a place where managing, you know, an artist like Jeremiah should be, he should have been very happy to have, you know, a seasoned manager and someone who had been kind of around and had relationships and could be helpful. And, you know, I just felt like I never wanted to give someone that kind of power over me, you know, in terms of, being in a position to fire me. So it was one of those moments where I was like, you know what, I'm going to really focus on building human resources, building with people that appreciate my value add, leaning into the relationships with people that, you know, really respect you know, what I bring to the table and just kind of made a vow to not, you know, it's, I'm not a fixer, right. And kind of knowing that the elements aren't there and trying to make someone kind of be the right partner for you. It just, it just doesn't work at the end of the day. So that was a moment for me where I was like, you know what, I'm not going to be in this position again. Yeah. Cause that's a lot of power to put, especially when you're putting everything in, you have obviously all these connections, all this knowledge and to have it all rest in the soul of in many ways, one employer can be really tough for Jeremiah specifically. What year was this that he had fired you? It was three years ago. That's tough. It's really tough. Obviously, you then creating a indie distributor like Human Resources, it's one, understanding the value prop for artists, because I'm sure while managing Jeremiah, you signed lots of deals. You probably saw some you might have liked. You saw some that you didn't like. But here, it's clearly trying to provide the platform for artists to have something that works more in their favor, but still getting the same or at least similar type of benefits that they could from a major record label. Because it seems like that was the vibe you have built with human resources. Yeah. I mean, as a manager, you never wanted to be at the mercy of a record company, right? So we always tried to build, from a management perspective, we always tried to build a team around us where if there was things on the marketing side that we wanted to plug into, we didn't have to wait on anyone. If there was going and soliciting playlisting from streamers, we don't have to wait on the label, even radio and obviously touring. And like you want to build this team where it's like self-contained, you can provide for the artist in every way and you're not waiting on anyone. And that's what we tried to create at Human Resources is true label services for our partners, but in distribution-based deals. 
And with this, you had created a business model to take a 20% distribution fee from the artist, which is definitely artist-friendly relative to what the traditional record label contract would offer. I wonder, though, from an economics perspective, though, are there any type of services that you can't offer that a major record label would, given the fact that they are taking much more of a cut for working with the artist relative to what you would take or what you have taken with the artist? I'd like to think that we're able to be competitive now. Before we were acquired, it was tough because we're a 10-person team. We had one employee in the UK. It's tough to truly have global releases when you don't have some kind of boots on the ground ex-US. And, you know, with the benefit of the internet, you know, the streaming platforms, you're able to do a lot of the work, but really being able to, to properly serve and build a superstar. I mean, we've, we've had some really good base hits, but really being able to have a real global home run, I think the infrastructure that we have currently allows for us to be competitive with any major label in the game. And the infrastructure you're talking about specifically is being acquired by Sony and doing that deal, right? Yeah. And the orchard, you know, which is where my deal sits, the resources that we have there and our ability to execute globally and go to radio and do things in-house, you know, do things that we weren't set up to do previously. What did this deal look like? And I know you may not be able to share all of the examples, but were there certain things that you had to give up or were there certain things that you had to do or any trade-offs in order to team up with both Sony and the Orchard? The trade-off is the ownership in the business. <laughs> you know, They paid us for it, but that's the trade-off. And having a partner, which feels good. you know, It's all very positive. We're super excited about the new relationship. We felt like we were able to make a responsible deal. And being inside now, I've also taken a real interest in helping from the inside out. And you know, being an ex- executive vice president at Sony, as well as The Orchard, I think that part of what I'm going to have to do is try to make change and try to create a scenario where advocating for the right Black you know, executives that are coming up, doing responsible deals with artists, just kind of culturally, community and culture is something that we got to build, continue to build at Sony and at the Orchard. I mean, I think that Frog Springer, the chairman of Sony and, and Brad, who runs the Orchard, are genuine about wanting to have minority inclusion and really kind of equality in the workplace as it pertains to Black executives. I think they're taking it very seriously and really taking the steps to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So I was super impressed and continue to be impressed with what both Sony and The Orchard are doing in that space. Nice. Was it a tough decision at all? Because, I mean, on paper, it all makes sense, right? There were certain things that you had limitations with. You wanted to be able to have a platform for global superstars, and you didn't necessarily have that Sony and the Orchard offer that. But in some ways, I'm sure human resources was still your baby. Like You probably wanted to maximize it to its full potential before doing any of that. Was it a tough decision like from a founder perspective? It was tough. I mean, yeah, because you build it and you know, I bootstrapped the, uh, the company and yeah, of course it's tough. And also the co-founders of Q&A, which is, you know, the merger that I did with Troy Carter and Susie Rue, that's my family. So it was like, 
that part is tough. You know, it's not an easy decision. And I've never had a job before. So that in itself was something that I had to really give thought to. But I'm not complaining. The opportunity is is awesome. Both Sony and The Orchard have been extremely welcoming and are equally as motivated to break acts and make change. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about where we are. But certainly you have your fears going into any new relationship. And I'm sure there'll be some bumps in the road and some growing pains, but I'm committed to making the most of this opportunity. What are some of those fears? It's like any relationship because you go through the courting stages where, you know, we're, we're courting one another and then, you know, you're in the honeymoon stage. But then there's times where you got real hurdles and real issues that come up. And I feel like that's when you really get to see who someone is when you're in the trenches. So, you know, those things will come. I feel very confident the folks that I've been working with are going to be be there with me and we'll be shoulder to shoulder fighting a good fight. So a lot of the potential fears have already been squashed. And, you know, I feel really good about where we are. That's what's up. So you had mentioned that this is your first official job. And, you know, this is an executive role. I'm sure that you've been and worked with a lot of these same people before. But from a work perspective and considering the work that you're already doing, like how much of your day is spent still leading and trying to maximize things for human resources and the artists you have there versus being an EVP now at Sony and being an EVP at The Orchard? Human resources is at Sony and at The Orchard. So, you know, the time spent on those projects is for the company. The beauty about where we sit currently is that I have a bit more bandwidth to be creative and do what I love and really build with the artists because now we have a, a system that I can do a little bit of a handoff and the Orchard team can pick up the ball and run with it, you know, and because they're set up to do so on the services side. So I think it puts us in a position where we can scale human resources and sign more acts. We're still only going to sign stuff that we really, truly care about and love. It does put us in a position to do more and to do more globally. Are there any acts specifically that you feel the most proud of or any projects that you worked on before the acquisition that you felt the most proud of? from the artists that you're able to work with through human resources? Because you put out some pretty big projects and you're able to make some pretty big headways in the industry. I guess, what do you look back on in the pre-acquisition phase? It'll sound cliche, but I was like, you're proud of all of them. I don't have the benefit of, certainly didn't have the benefit in the beginning of being competitive with most distribution companies and certainly not the labels because we were new. We were very limited resources. You know, I was taking a couple pennies out of my pocket to pay the staff and sign artists. And, you know, so I didn't have the resources to compete with artists that were already working. If something already had traction, I didn't have the checkbook to go be competitive. I didn't have the team or the report card to say, this is why you need to be with us because we've done X, Y, and Z, or I can write you this check or, you know, I didn't have any of that. So a hundred percent of the artists that we signed were baby acts and just getting started. So to see them be able to put one foot in front of the next and take the next step in terms of building in their career, you're proud of every one of those acts. In spite of sounding cliche, I'm proud of all of the stuff we were able to do pre-merger. 
And that makes sense because you mentioned that so many of the artists came and they were baby acts, but a lot of them are names that many people that are following hip hop know now, whether it's YBN Namir, Corday, like all of these people are people that have had hits and have made their name around. I think that for them specifically and for an indie distributor like you all, being able to develop artists is a pretty strong benefit that I think a lot of people don't see as one of the key value adds at a major record label. So I could see that being a pretty big attraction for them as well, because you obviously wanted to team up with them so that you could get that global footprint, but they want to team up with you because you have the development experience and track record. So even though you may not feel like you necessarily have the track record of some of the other indie distributors, you've been able to show trajectory and traction with the development you've been able to have with these artists. So in that way, it seems like the pairing of the two was pretty aligned. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I think that we, they certainly filled a ton of holes for us and hopefully we, we fill some holes for them, but that's the goal. That sparks another thought, too, because I've often heard a few people both inside and outside of labels talk about the fact that the development piece just isn't necessarily as strong as it could be. Why do you think that is? I guess as someone that has now seen both sides of it. When you have the benefit of analytics that the major labels have, it creates a bit of risk mitigation. They're taking more calculated bets. They might have to pay a little bit more for it, but they're taking more calculated bets. I'm betting on gut. I'm not betting on analytics. I don't have the luxury of saying, you know, this artist has a record that's streaming, that's selling out shows, or they're, you know, they have a ton of followers on Instagram. Like, I don't have the benefit of those analytics to know that something is sticky. So it's good old fashioned gut. And Sometimes your gut can be wrong because it's personal taste. I've tried to build a team around me of, of young people that are connected to like a YBN Namir. In all honesty, I probably wouldn't have heard that because I grew up on after NWA and Public Enemy and all of those. It was Nas and Jay. And I come from a bit of a different hip hop era. So some artists, I just might not hear it. I might not get it. My son who works for us, he signed an artist from the UK, this young man named Lancey Foe. And when he came to me with it, I immediately shot it down. I'm like, UK rap is never translated in the US. We've been, we've been talking about it from grime to this to that for years. And it just has never really translated in a real way. And I shut it down. And, you know, I was driving into work the next day and I'm like, that goes against everything that I say that I'm about, right? Because as a company, we say that we're supporting of, of, of young people. So I wasn't being supportive of something that he was super passionate about. We say that we're a music first company. I shut it down before even listening to the music. It, this goes against everything that I ever said that we're supposed to be about. So I called my son in and he, and he played me the music and I got it. And then I ended up meeting the kid and he's like, kid's a superstar, super smart kid, really nice. Like all of the things that you would want, articulate, you know, fashion forward, like all of the things that you would look for, it was everything. And to me, it was like those moments where I got to kind of check myself and not be, not taking an antiquated old school approach, but really listening to and supporting the young people around me and their vision. That's what it is for me. 
That makes sense. I hear you on that. It's tough to make the adjustment. I mean, we're talking about why the end of mirror, like, unless you're someone that's active on Twitch or I think that's the platform that he started popping off on early on. It's tough for someone that's not in that age demographic to be like, oh yeah, I get it. Like you almost need to have someone that like bridges it for you to really see the connection. You mentioned something about the analytics piece, and that's interesting because I've seen and heard the debate, right, about picking and choosing artists based on gut versus analytics. And I do think that in some ways, analytics is seen as being the strength of the opportunity. We can at least quantify what's there. But I'm sure that there's probably still people that may see the analytics and want to use them more for guidance, but still want to go with the gut at the end of the day. And I imagine that's going to always be a balance. And I'm sure that's probably a balance in your everyday work now, because there's so much data, whether it's who's performing well on TikTok or who's performing well here. But at the end of the day, you can have all those stats. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be a successful major record label artist. I mean, a lot of times it'll mean that you have a song. And when I look at what's happening on TikTok, like TikTok can tell you if you got a song, <laughs> you know, it, it won't necessarily tell you if you have a superstar. I think part of that is gut. And part of that is doing the work when you start to get some traction and you have a song is like translating it and connecting the dots where people are like, okay, I know this song. I, like, I can't tell you the amount of times where it's like, Hey, have you heard of this artist X, Y, and Z? And they're like, no. And then it's like, oh, you know, the one with the dance that goes like this or the song. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. And it's like, you got to figure out how to connect the dots. And if it's more than just, just a song, you know, or just a moment in social time, you know, it's, so that still takes gut and it still takes work to have these things translate in a real way. The song piece, I know that that's become more common, especially in TikTok, but a lot of this existed on YouTube when YouTube really started popping, when everyone saw Soldier Boy and then everyone wanted their singles to try to go viral. I guess to a lesser extent in like the MTV and music video days, just because you probably needed to be on a major in order to get played on, you know, 106 and Park or just whatever the big stations were either there on MTV or BET. But yeah, I do think it's tough to at least be able to bridge that difference because yeah having a song you can definitely quantify and see that but there's still a gap and i think that's part of the art of it right like this is why there's plenty of people employed in doing this work because it can't just be an algorithm that spits out okay the person that rises to the top of this chart these are the people in order who are the top superstars it's definitely a mix of things yeah absolutely i'm interested in your thoughts on this wave of independence because I think that's been a underlying theme of the work that you had done at Human Resources to help support artists maintaining ownership of their masters and their assets, but still getting the benefits of partnering with you. And there are more artists than ever that are at least A, wanting to follow this route or being more protective of their stuff because artists are talking about it more. What's your take on the landscape generally now as someone that does work for a major record label but does want to see artists owning and managing their music assets? The music space is the only space where artists don't own their art. So when you're talking about major labels and the investment that they make, it's hard to deny that they should participate, right? I think that the way that I've looked at it is upon success, you should be able to come back to the table and 
you know, have a conversation, you know, and, and figure out something that's fair. But when these artists are doing, initially, they're doing a lot of the work in terms of the artist development and really putting themselves in a position to have real success, they should be able to participate in ownership. I like where the community is, like in, in terms of, I wasn't thinking about ownership when I was 17 years old. I had no thoughts of ownership. All we wanted to do when I was, even when I was 30 years old in the music business is like get an artist a record deal. That was still the goal. And, you know, to hear some of these young people talking about ownership and independence, it's refreshing because, you know, you want to see these young people win. And they're starting to think in that way where they're starting to think about ownership very early in the game. Yeah. And I think you need to have a nuanced take at this. And I feel like from what I've heard you and also what your business partner, Troy Carter, has said as well, the music industry in a lot of ways has gotten used to the way the model has worked. But there comes to a certain point where after the act is de-risked and they're no longer a risk to no longer pan out, yes, they've proven themselves as a star, as you had said. Like There should be a conversation that ends up being had or at least being able to have it so it's not still this protection where whoever it is, a, a Kanye West or whoever, like is still trying to argue for ownership of what they did, even though they've already proven themselves to no longer be a risk 15 or however many so years ago. It's interesting. I feel like the tough part about it is, is that, and this is my take, I want to know your perspective, the decision of whether to be owning your assets or taking the record deal or somewhere in between really lies on what your goals may be and what your ambitions are. I think if you want to be a global superstar that has that footprint everywhere. I think it's going to be very hard to do it without the support of a major record label. However, if you're a bit more comfortable owning the smaller pie, what you have, and you're not necessarily as big, but you're still profitable, you're still doing what you need to do, then ownership may make a bit more sense for you. But I think making that decision can be tough for the artist that just sees upside and requires them to either feel like they're trading off one thing or the other everybody's needs are different, right? You know, when you have pop acts, you're going at pop radio and the expectation for visuals is there's a standard, right? And I think that what hip hop has also shown us is that with very little resources, making the right records, culturally making the right moves, you can move into that popular pop culture space without a ton of resources. So I think for a lot of artists, it just depends on what they're looking for and what, they, what their needs are. What I would recommend is that artists should build as much as they can independently and be able to have enough leverage going into a major label deal where they're able to get terms that are you know, a bit more fair. And that part is no different from a lot of other industries where if you have an idea and you go to someone to fund it, they're going to want to own the majority of it. You know, If they're putting up millions of dollars for you know, what everybody has high hopes for, but there's no proof of, you know, of concept of that it works, they're going to want to own a big chunk of it. So my advice is always to go do the work, do as much as you can, build as much as you can. So you're going into these conversations with a bit more leverage. Yeah. And that's where music is so interesting because I mean, you look at your standard record deal, whether it's a 83, 17 split or one of these 80, 20 splits, and you compare that to something like 
tech, it's probably a bit rarer that a founder is giving up you know, 80% or 83% of the business in exchange for what is out there. But I think because the landscape has changed, that's why we're seeing so many different models, whether it's what you're offering or what some of these other distributors are offering that are a bit more hands-off, whether it's a United Masters or a STEM or an Empire. Like There's this whole spectrum, I think, of where each record label and where each distributor lies. And that in some ways can be really empowering, but in other ways, it also leaves a lot of options for an artist. That's like, Oh, what is the best option to go with? And it's not that there's necessarily like a bad decision, but it more so depends on like where you're at, because whatever you're interested in, there probably is an option or multiple options out there to meet you where you're at. We're taking the approach of the human touch. We want people to be with us because They like our team. They like our approach. We're not a volume-based distribution company. We're not just signing anything. There is a vetting process and A&R process. So we're doing things that we love, and we're applying management kind of DNA to distribution where we want to be there every step of the way. You know, when you're performing in front of three people at your first show, we want to be two of those three people. When you're in the studio, we're there with you. We're shoulder to shoulder and kind of building it. And as it grows, we want to be there every step of the way. So we're applying a different kind of mentality to the distribution landscape. I like that. What excites you most about the future of where things are going? There's just so much that is changing right now in the music industry. I think there's a lot of opportunity for artists. As you're looking at the next five years or the next decade, what are you most excited about? I'm excited about technology. I'm excited about the fact that, you know, there is a ton of music out there. You know, a lot of folks will complain about how much is out there. But, you know, for me, it's exciting because there's going to be lots of new artists. There's new stuff to jump into daily. But the way technology is growing and how kids are using it is super exciting. Every day, there's new ways in which artists have new tools that they have to market and promote themselves, new platforms, you know, especially given COVID and the way that a lot of folks pivoted. The pandemic and COVID hasn't been fun to watch, but the pivoting and the resilience of a lot of young artists has been fun to watch. And, you know, it's getting back outside is exciting too. You know, it's, um, you know, I think when 2022, when we're able to really be back outside in a real way, I think there's a lot of uh, anticipation and excitement around that as well. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm excited personally, but also for the industry too, because I know that every artist that didn't get to tour in 2020 or even the early parts of 2021 now want to get out there. But I also know it's going to be really competitive. What do you think about that in terms of artists being able to get the spots and the venues that they want, knowing that everyone is ultimately going to want to get in there once things are open? That part's going to figure itself out. I mean, I think you'll have a high demand from fans and a high demand from artists. And, you know, they'll figure out how to utilize, you know, between AEG and Live Nation and independent promoters, they'll figure out how to utilize these buildings and get folks opportunities to perform. Well, we're getting to the tail end of the podcast, but before we let you go, I'm sure you get hit up a lot about people wanting to get advice from you. What did you do to make it this far? What are the standard things that you say to people? What's the advice that you often give to young executives trying to get where you are now? You get out what you put in. Being an entrepreneur is not easy. 
you got to have a stomach for it because it's not easy. And, you know, it takes a lot of, a lot of hard work, a lot of nights, sleepless nights, not knowing, you know, just kind of what the future holds. You can't cheat the work. You can't cheat it. You got to put the work in, you know, so I encourage young people to work hard, build solid relationships. That part has always been tough for me. I'm not like, uh, even doing this is like, it's always been tough for me. You know, I like to, I like to just do the work and go home. I don't, you know, like the industry events and the ability to, to build relationships with folks when there's not, you don't have something very specific to talk about is like, it's tough, you know? And that part has always been the toughest for me, you know, cause I wear my emotions on my sleeve. Sometimes I can be super direct, which, you know, is, can be off-putting at times. And um, I have a hard time laughing at jokes that I don't think are funny. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's challenging, you know, but it's rewarding. I feel blessed to be able to have been in the space, just in it for over 20 years, right? And still be here. You know, I've seen a lot of people come and go. I've seen my friends have a ton of success and my network of, of my very close friends become, you know, some of the biggest movers and shakers in the space. There's certainly been lots of sleepless nights. I've missed a lot. I've missed weddings. I've missed birthdays. I've missed Christmases, New Year's. I've missed a lot over the years. And there's a lot of that you have to sacrifice. And, you know, there's times in which I felt like I was working hard and then, you know, would be around, you know, a friend and realize there's another gear. I can go harder. And I also really for my kids and for, for young people that I talk to is really about surrounding yourself with the right people as well. You know, I'm motivated by my friend group and they wouldn't allow me to just slack. We're super honest with one another and supportive, but honest and tough on each other. And, you know, I feel like the folks that you say, you know, there's that saying that you're a makeup of the six people you spend the most time with. And I feel like that's really true as it pertains to business and your work life and, how you build, especially if you're trying to build entrepreneurially, you got to surround yourself with smart people that will help motivate you and kind of be there for you when you need support or help. That's real. And I mean, from the outside in, it definitely seems like you got those people around you that are making those moves as well, working in lockstep with what you're doing. So it's great to see, man. I mean, I know that this was a big past few months with the acquisition. A lot of people are happy to see it. I'm sure you're happy too, but keep grinding, man. It's dope. It's dope. You got a lot of people inspired by what you're doing. Thank you, man. You too. When I saw that this got set up, I did a little bit of a dive on you know your podcast and what you built and you've had some phenomenal people on. I like to see that you've supported some of those young executives that you know I'm talking about like you know just kind of supported that new generation that's coming up and not just the same five names that we see do these these things often. So you as well, man, keep building. If there's anything that, you know, myself or my team can network and can do to be helpful, you know, don't hesitate to give us a shout, man, because I, I like what you're doing. I like the platform that you're providing for people and the information that, you know, I learned stuff from the couple of episodes that I was able to tap into. So, you know, it's important. You know, I didn't know that there was necessarily other options for young black folks in music aside from being a producer or being a, an artist or a DJ or something like that. I didn't know that these things really existed, you know? So I think just the more that young people could hear about, you know, so I, you had a young publishing executive on, you know, it's like, that's a space where it's like 
a lot of young, you know, black and brown kids don't know that that's a real opportunity and don't know enough about it. So, you know, continue to do your thing, man, and educate young people. And like I said, whatever we can do to be supportive, we're here. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. It means a lot. Yeah, let's definitely stay in touch. I'll keep you posted too. And for folks listening that want to follow you and keep in touch with what you're doing, what's the best place they can follow you? It's on Instagram. It's human.read.sources. Jay Irving, this is a pleasure, man. I'm glad you could come through. Thank you, man. Thanks for your time. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapital continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.